<laughs> cool. Uh, I've got to change some things. Okay. Looks like the uh, the logo is still the old low hour logo and stuff. Um, and it appears that it's already recording. Um, I'm really hoping that things go a little bit smoother and a little bit more professional in the future because right now I got to go shut my window out to the outdoors and my cat is messing with stuff on the bed yeah I mean if we have like the raw file we can like go through and like cut like this chunk out right I know yeah I know but sometimes I like to I don't know I think we might leave it in say screw it no yeah that's Um, fine you know that that real that real life shit whatever people like to say I don't know I'm not cool anymore no, no, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm right there with you now. That that OG shit, you know. Yeah. When you're coughing through the mic, you're just like. <laughs> All right. My buddy, uh, this is his last. Well, today was like his last day of work, um, uh-huh. and he's about to go over to San Diego. He's gonna be a cop. He's a he's a Good yeoman. Luck. Yeah, yeoman is like a second. No, he's not. He's not actually gonna be a cop. He's like a yeoman, and the yeoman's uh, basically like a secretary in the Navy. Uh, so he's going to be doing like yeoman work, like admin work for uh, prison. Is that spelled like Y-E-O-M-A-N? Yeah. I I could have sworn yeoman were like archers in video games. <laughs> I you know, you know, like all these fucking... Well, okay, so the... The, like the sigil, like the logo for the yeoman is a quill. It is like but oh, like, okay. like the feather pen. So, I mean, maybe it stems from like the like, pen is mightier than the sword, like in reference to that or something. I have no, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm just, I'm. I'm yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing a quick Google. And I mean, the only two definitions I come up with are the first one is they're both historical definitions. And one says it's a man holding and cultivating a small land. So a free farmer of sorts and then the other is a servant in a royal or noble household ranking between a sergeant and a groom or between a squire and a page um and then but then also says see results about yeomen in the united states navy um historically navy yeomen were responsible for keeping the storerooms for the ship's gunners carpenters and boatswains and with the transition from sail I lost the page where'd it go um, from sail to steam they were they became the ship's engineers and then in the modern navy a yeoman is an enlisted service member who performs administrative and clerical work damn Sounds like Yeoman kind of just got shoved around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that was like a lot of the early Navy. I mean, in the beginning, like, Bosun's mates were just like, whatever. They were just a body. You know, they'd be like, they'd be the powder monkeys. Like, they'd be the guys carrying buckets of gunpowder, going to, like, different cannons just to, like, load it up. Oh. Super expendable. Um, and just, you know, the navies have evolved over the years. Yeah. Yeah, it's become like highly, highly specialized. 
Gotcha. Well, I guess in order to give some people who might be listening some background, um, how about you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, maybe I should introduce myself too, because this is technically the first episode of anything. Uh, also, we just passed 420. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're going to blaze it, but we will. Um, no, we're not going to see, because I don't think I don't blaze it, and I don't think you're allowed to. Uh, I mean, you kind of do with your little, uh, you know, THC lattes or whatever you get. Uh, I get CBD lattes, and I stopped getting them because I found out that they actually weren't helping. Um, like the combination of the caffeine of the latte and then the or the espresso, and then the kind of like I, I wouldn't quite call it sedative, but the calming effect of the CBD actually had like a really nasty whiplash effect on me. Well, I think that's um, like the perfect introduction for you. What a nasty whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> you like yeah. cars you drive fast sometimes and then i buy giant lifted slow off-road trucks and drive <laughs> slow <laughs> um but anyways yeah i guess my introduction for myself for this podcast thing would be uh my name is elijah akins i am unemployed um but i guess kind of i I, I made the transition to um, being like a full-time uh, stock trader a while back. I know everybody in the last year seems to have done that, you know, the GameStop explosion and all that stuff. But like, I've kind of been doing that for a couple of years before everything picked up and took a while to get there. But now I've been doing that. And I'm also a freelance photographer and journalist, which is where this area uh, kind of sits in my life is the more of the journalism and um, kind of just thoughtful side. My background is in political science. That's what I went to school for. Um, but I never really used it outside of school because I immediately went to work um, with uh, Mercedes-Benz as a kind of a jack of all trades there. I did customer service work. I did photography. I did social media management. I did. They, they even started their own like subscription service that was kind of odd. Um, I don't know if it went anywhere, but I was in charge of um, kind of doing some boots on the ground stuff with Mercedes then back in about 2018. Um, and then since then I worked in the travel industry for uh, two different travel magazines in Oregon and Washington. Um, but my background starting in political science um, back in Georgia was where I actually met you um, at our shared university and also our shared fraternity. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we met, you know, at the University of West Georgia, uh, both frauders mm -hmm. of Tau Cap Epsilon, Xi Theta Chapter. Uh, I'm Askia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> Askia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a background in studio art and I minored in marketing. Um, and I essentially wanted to go into like advertising and doing like Super Bowl style commercials. And after college, I ended up working at an IT company for a little while, trying to get into their marketing department. And while I was there for about a year, I kind of thought about joining the military a lot because that's what I wanted to do in high school. 
And when I started researching different jobs of the different branches, I learned that they had mass comm specialists, which is kind of a combination of public affairs and media work. So I decided to join the Navy, came in as an MC, mass comm specialist, and uh, I do uh, primarily public affairs assistance. I do videography, I do news writing. I've done a little bit of graphic design stuff, not as much as I would like to, but I've done some graphic design. And uh, I'm looking to get out the Navy and go more into like animation, like build up those skills. Uh, I've always had an interest in politics, just like, you know, Elijah, he's the political science major. Um, and I've learned a lot from him and he's you know, connected me with a lot of great authors and things of that nature. I, I don't know necessarily how I would connect my interest for art with politics, but that's kind of where I feel like I'm going to end up a space. I'm going to end up working someday. Yeah, I could definitely see you going that direction. I mean, I think the first thing that pops into my head would be uh, political cartoons. Um, but I mean, that's, and I don't know how much you would enjoy that or not. If you, I know you uh, might get a little um, jaded after a bit and feel like all you're doing is propaganda, but um, I don't know. There's, there's creative elements to it too. So. Yeah. Yeah. I really love reading editorials. Um, I like one of my all time favorite web comics and, uh, before it was a web comic, it was a syndicated newspaper comic, uh, The Boondocks. It had mm, like yeah. a show on Adult Swim and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I do enjoy like that form of storytelling. So, yeah, as you said, like, yeah, like getting into political cartoons, like doing editorials, that could be, yeah, that could definitely be something. It's mostly, you know, and we've had many conversations. It's mainly just like uh, me learning how to do things for myself and not just for a job. Like if I'm yeah. doing something for my job, I'm highly productive. Like I'm, you know, I'm going super hard at it. And, um, but when it comes to just kind of doing things on my own, like kind of being more self-driven, more self-motivated, kind of just giving myself tasking that's not uh, based on like the companies or just the organization's goals, just on my own personal goals. I kind of just, uh, I feel directionless and I end up kind of just not very, not, not producing much, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's always tough. It seems that, you know, getting that internal motivation, um, you know, we, we you'll build up a resentment towards your boss or your company or the Navy or whoever. If you stay there long enough, having to get told to make this, make that when if you're a creative, because it starts to feel like I'm not actually doing anything that I feel connected to. Right. But but then when we had the chance to do stuff that we feel connected to, we're like, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah and so, yeah yeah sorry go I, was, ahead. I was just gonna say like every now and then i'll like randomly get like a a burst of manic energy and i just stay up until like 4 a.m and then i actually produce like a comic strip or something of that nature i'm like oh, okay this is nice and i throw it away <laughs> yeah um for a long time i, I know you guys you remember this particularly well I, I had a comic series i worked on it was um, yeah. called tom pesto and uh, I've made the best Tom Pesto comics when I was going through nasty relationships and breakups because <laughs> I could make a little angsty comic. And of course, I would never send it to the girl I was seeing, but like, you know, it just, it, I would send it to you. <laughs> and right, right. Like, um, it, I don't know, it was an interesting uh, way of processing things. And that's what art has always been for me, it was a way of 
uh, you know, processing. Like I got into photography initially by just going for walks because I couldn't stand sitting at home anymore. And then I was like, well, I saw something cool today. I wish I took a picture. So then I brought my phone and then I, my phone wasn't good enough camera. So then I got a real camera and then, and then thousands of dollars later, I'm a broke photographer. <laughs> um, so I think we all find our way into, into that creative space at some point or another, but it's that trick of staying attached to it and staying motivated. Um, but with that in mind, I think we're going to take a kind of a, I don't know, non-traditional approach to this podcast, which is, uh, which you could also argue is very traditional because I feel like everyone does it, but there's a nuance in how quote unquote, we're going to be different. And that idea is that um, each week we're going to, um, or each episode, I don't know how frequently we're going to do episodes, might be weekly, might be twice a week, might be twice a month, whatever. But each episode, we're going to have a topic and we're going to each bring, uh, or I guess we have a subject matter and we're going to bring to topic uh, a topic each and we'll kind of go through one and then we'll have like a halftime and then we'll go on to the next one. Um, as a ski had already mentioned, our first kind of connection, I think that we started talking about a lot and we really connected over in college and stuff was we would always talk about politics. Um, we'd go for, I remember we'd go for walks across campus, multiple walks around across all over campus for hours, just talking about random and so I think that's a good place to sort of start with uh, for this first episode. And specifically, uh, we're going to talk about uh, any kind of global conflict. I've already got one in mind, um, and it's not the one that Skia thinks it's going to be. Um, he's already got a topic, and I don't know what his is, his is yet. Um, but we're going to basically start today with uh, the topics of conflicts and global conflicts and just what's going on with them. Um, but this is not a news podcast. This is not an academic podcast. This is not a uh, any kind of like virtue signaling or holier than thou kind of podcast. This is a real talk. Um, God, I already feel cringy saying that. But this podcast, as far as I have planned out, is not to be taken so super seriously or whatever like um full disclosure full disclaimer my entire background when it came to school and my political studies was in human rights and genocide studies so i really care and i'm really versed on really dark serious issues and I think sometimes the only way you can talk about them um, is with some sort of humor, because otherwise the topics just get darker and darker and darker. And it's hard to see any kind of light. Uh, that's not to say that I intend to offend or disrespect any of the struggles that people are going on through um, in these parts of the world. But sometimes I think it just it's, you know if you can bring awareness to some of these darker subjects without just depressing the shit out of your audience, um, then a little humor is warranted. Um, 
Skia, do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean... Oops, sorry about that. I think, I think that's me. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I do teeter on, like, the edge of, like, when do I need to curb my cynicism whenever I hear about just another, you know, very dark or tragic thing in the news. Uh, mm -hmm. And I often think to a lot of comedians who say, you know, laughter, you know, is... Uh, a, a great tool for managing tragedy and, and so yeah like i i'll do my best to be as respectful as i possibly can like for especially for talking about like a darker thing but uh i will totally if i can create like a tasteful joke about of a situation or if something pops in my mind i'm like oh my gosh yeah i just i gotta i gotta make a joke out of that i just can't help it um yeah, yeah that's probably where i'm gonna it's probably what's gonna happen so essentially a shit post yeah, yeah, there you go. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, the first, one of the first, and I, I don't know if every podcast is going to be focusing on conflict. Like we, we have a wide variety of um, shared interests. And, you know, even if they're not shared interests, I'm always interested in hearing whatever you, you might want to bring to the table that week. So, um, but I, I do think that at the core of a lot of this is, um, I, I think a lot of times whenever you and me are either messaging or talking and like in our daily lives, it's, it's usually there's some humor in the background. It's either, it's usually kind of dark, but it's, I think it's enjoyable. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring here was just um, let's, let's talk about shit and, you know, at the very least amuse ourselves. So um, without further ado, um, I'm going to bring up my topic and this topic. Wow. This feels so fucking robotic. Like, dude, let me bring up my topic. Here is my topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, at the time it's going to get more natural. Yeah. Um, your mom got more natural anyways. Um, yeah, she stopped uh, relaxing her hair. Nice. Fun. Cool. I, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, so I'm going to bring up a country that I'm actually going to pronounce the uh, the name wrong. Um, because, and I didn't do my homework. All I know is that there was a coup in this country in the last week or so or two weeks. And I believe it's pronounced uh, Burkina Faso or Faso. Um, it, it's a land landlocked country in uh, West Africa, and it had a military coup a couple weeks ago. And as far as everything I've understood, this country has been having a lot of issues with um, Islamic terrorism and just kind of in bandits and stuff. And and what I believe is the northern part of the country. And the government for a very long time was not adequately like responding to the threat. They weren't sending enough military forces to the north. And when they would, they would just grab like random units from nowhere in particular and just be like, you got to go fight the terrorists now. And no one in the country was happy with it. There were a lot of issues in the, um, and finally, like the people kind of just asked the military to take over and they ended up kicking the president out. And now the military is currently controlling the country, but it looks like that's actually the real will of the people. So it's a little kind of tricky on how you 
go about deciding like what the fuck is uh should be happening like you know it's not great to just have a military coup go off uh whenever they feel like it but if you know if that's like the will of the people do we support that do do we think that's like a actually a democratic effort of having the military overthrow the government like what do you think uh you know i mean i'm not there i'm and to me, I mean, it, I don't know. I don't. I don't know who's really putting out this messaging. I would think, like, if the military had taken over the country, then you know, people are probably just going to say, like, "Oh yeah, I freaking I love it. I love the generals are president now, just so they don't get shot." Um, I know, like, historically, you know, for like centuries, uh, African governments have always been very militaristic. You know, so it's kind of like it's just kind of like just one of those like ancient, long-standing traditions. You know, like looking back historically, even like Western countries, um, we still have like this like tradition of like overvalue. Not let me not say overvaluing, but uh, placing high value in like military leadership. I've, there's so many just Americans I've met who are like, I believe that every president should have served in the military before they you know can run for president, etc. Um, so I mean, like I I. I don't doubt that people are happy that there's like a strong fisted like form of government that's going to push back against any form of extremism, any form of, you know, religious tyranny or just tyranny in general. Because, I mean, if you have like secular military whose sole goal is to make sure the country has a strong economy, functional roads, you know, just like the, the most basic aspects of living are decent then even your most religious person is going to favor that. You know, uh, we've seen it in various like theocratic countries like Saudi Arabia in, in particular. Saudi Arabia is like well known for being super duper uh, strict on their implementation of like religious law. But in reality, uh, the country is like highly secular. You know, it, it's it if you go there, it's, it's very well developed. And uh, sometimes you have to split hairs in terms of going according to the rules that were you know set forth centuries ago versus doing what's practical in the 21st century um but so yeah i mean kind of i guess kind of went off on a tangent there but yeah basically i mean no, uh, yeah i'm pretty sure rikina faso like they're they're struggling you know like they're they're just trying to find their way um you might need for like the north to kind of coagulate into like some kind of uh theocratic state honestly because i know like the north of and i don't know where Burkina Faso is like, um i just i know the north of nigeria like an american nigeria. who doesn't know where an african country is <laughs> <laughs> yeah i you mentioned it was in west africa so i'm in my mind i'm picturing like close to nigeria somewhere i know the northern part of nigeria they have the exact same issue where uh essentially like half the country uh, doesn't really care for the secular laws of the southern half of the country. Like they mm -hmm. want to be more theocratic. Uh, you have like these, you know, terrorist groups like Al Shabaab and who are moving out in that area. Yeah. Doing what they do. Um, so I mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily know what the long term solution would be. Um, I think perhaps rather than having like these military conflicts where you just like kill a bunch of people you could 
possibly take some of that same like labor, that same money, those same resources and say, hey, like people who want to live in like a theocratic state, you know, we'll let you travel up north and people who don't want to live in a theocratic state will let you travel down south. Maybe, you know, divide up these two areas. Because essentially, like when these countries were formed in Africa, like it was just some like random Europeans took a pen and just scribbled lines around a giant map of the continent. Uh, and it's not like any of these borders really make sense based on the languages spoken in these regions or the cultures of the various peoples. So um, kind of like how Sudan and South Sudan are two separate countries where Sudan is more like uh, is far more theocratic. It's, it's far more like strict in terms of their laws. And then South Sudan basically became like a democratic state. They just have like no money at all whatsoever. So they're uh, pretty much struggling uh, pretty harshly over there. But, yeah. yeah. So I, I pulled it up on a map. Burkina Faso is directly south of Mali, and Mali represents most of its like northern and northwestern border. And then Ghana is directly to the south of Burkina Faso, and then Nigeria and Niger are to the west, or sorry, to the east. Um, so it's and it seems like the southern half of the country is a little bit more temperate, and the northern half is very arid, kind of desert. And that seems to be where they were having the issues with with the terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab and I think variants of ISIL um, and then just bandits in general or in the desert region. Um, now, what's kind of interesting um, is that like the United Nations came out, I think, some either today or yesterday and said that the coup well that's the thing they are not calling it a coup um which is kind of an interesting step where like all the mainstream like global news media are all referring to it as the military coup but the united nations um, who is i believe at the time being like recognizing that government um right is not calling it a coup, uh, but they are expressing serious and grave and all those kind of heavy, um, you know, terms to, to express that they have, you know, a great deal of concern with right. what's going on there. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like the military coup was a particularly violent one. Like there was a little bit of shooting, but I think the second the military showed any kind of force the like government and like police forces back down and just you know the military basically walked in and took over at that point right um, the you know the the former president i think either was allowed to escape or it didn't seem like it was the military's objective to rush in there and just grab the president and you know execute them or any other kind of crazy stunt. So it seems like they really just wanted to take control um, because they didn't think that the government was effectively directing them to combat this threat. So, you know, there's, it's not obvious that there's been any weird demands from the military to shift over into like a dictatorship or radically change the rules or go into some kind of religious based rule or anything like that. It just seems like they're, uh, they were like, dude, we're losing this war against these fucking bandits. 
uh, if you're not going to do this right, we're, we'll, <laughs> we will. <laughs> so, right. um, I think that's where it's kind of led, but, uh, it is, I don't know. I think there's sometimes kind of a, you know, like you said, you don't even know where the country is. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't even heard about it in the news too much, even though you are, you know, you do work for the U.S. Navy in a mass communications role. Um, but I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It sometimes seems like there is kind of this dismissive attitude that a lot of the world gives to any new African conflict because it kind of sometimes just seems like, oh, great. Another country that I've only heard of a few times that I don't know where it's at is in another bloody violent coup. And there's kind of like this fatalist uh, dismissive attitude that we give it that goes, eh, it's another one and there'll be another one after it and another one after that. And I don't know, like... Yeah, I mean... Think about that attitude of just, fuck it, another one. <laughs> like yeah. the, the DJ Khaled, like, add another one. <laughs> another one. Another one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think there's that. I think to <clears throat> kind of... I think also it's just you're, you're just so far separated from it, you know? It's like, yeah. it's like you might empathize with the civilians and especially the children who are... Uh, caught up in the bullshit. I mean, I mean, but, do we though? I, you know, I mean, I, I've you always like, just like, man, fuck them kids. I don't even like kids no, in our country. I, mean, dude. I, don't, I, don't <laughs> think like, I think, like, I think if anyone had like seen what was happening, like they, they, you know, they'd be saddened by it. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, uh, it's like what, what can you really do about it? It's like, okay, there's a, a developing country that's still trying to like find its national identity, and most of these places are still in like these ongoing civil wars because, you know, they just, I don't know, they just haven't found their identities yet. Right. I mean, I think the only, I think, I think one, it seems like it's so much of it just because in our modern era of media, like there's people down on the ground in Burkina Faso recording stuff on their phones and then like putting it onto Twitter or whatever the case may be. And there's a lot of news co coverage of it from sites like say like Al Jazeera, which, uh, seems to cover like developing countries way more than like CNN or whatever. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I mean, you know, it's like it's what what can you really do, right? I mean, unless there's, unless you know, if these countries want to say, hey, like let's kind of do what the United States and Western countries have done, which is to have a society that's democratic where you have freedoms, but when the authority comes through to protect those freedoms of certain individuals, the freedoms of others get trampled upon. And then you have issues in terms of education and how certain sectors of society uh, aren't knowledgeable of laws to know that they're even being broken or didn't really have a say in the creation of those laws. So then you end up having a certain form of oppression. And then you, at that point it becomes of, oh, is this even a democratic society? And you know, like we're, we're basically seeing what was going on in the very formation of the United States. The only difference is like there weren't, you know, cameras everywhere in the 1770s. Versus... Yeah, or automatic weapons mounted on the back right. of Toyota pickups. Exactly. You know, where small groups of people can 
um, you know, it's kind of like, it's funny. There never, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that the idea that, um, and I, I can't get my words out. <laughs> and I, and the second I said, and the idea, I started reminding myself of Ben Shapiro. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and the idea, and the idea, and the idea. Um, but now, like, when you look at our country or most of the Western world and you think of, like, what can an individual really do nowadays? And, it, and there's kind of like this, uh, not really a hopeless, but there's kind of a like a give up feeling where it's like, I can't really change the world. Like what can one guy do, you know, um, unless you happen to go really viral and then that kind of feels like a happenstance kind of thing anyways. But do you go back to, and I don't want to use like the developing world because that sometimes can be used as a pejorative, but like if you go to places like Burkina Faso or, you know, Congo or South Sudan or, you know, um, or, you know, even to some extent, like countries like Kazakhstan or in, in like old Soviet countries, a couple, a couple guys with weapons and, you know, technical trucks can very quickly start a movement and can very quickly like change the course of an entire country um, where, in, you know, in a way that you couldn't in the past you used to need hundreds or thousands of of you know militia people gathering together with pitchforks and spears and you know and makeshift like wooden shields back in like medieval times to be able to overthrow like a government you know you needed massive amounts of bodies um but now if you if you can control that fear and control control if you have that mobility and you know comparatively high firepower at a relatively cheap price um, you can very quickly destabilize countries. And it's it's interesting that in our country, where we have it relatively very well, you know, very good, um, we've talked about how it's impossible to make any change as an individual. But you go to some country like Burkina Faso, and it's like, well, hey, you get enough guys and some guns very quickly, you can make a difference. And right. I, don't, I don't know <laughs> if that's a good thing, but it's interesting that, uh, I guess it's not too interesting. It's fairly predictable that that stability that comes with um, our country is probably, there's probably a correlation between that stability and that rigidness of our system and how hard it is to change it with some of the prosperity too. Right. Yeah, kind of it's what you're saying about like, oh, you know, a tiny group of people can uh, create such a massive change. Uh, a big part of it is how zealous that small group is. You know, we had just seen last year with Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, the Taliban had about 50,000 members. And not all of these members are fighters. You know, a lot of these people in the Taliban are, you know, they, they have public affairs in the Taliban, right? Like they have yeah, just... Which is crazy to think of. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you write that public affairs brief to to say like why cutting off someone's hands is appropriate? <laughs> like, I know. It's, it's one of those like, things. It's, yeah. They have, they have, uh, they have uh, their own versions of MCs in the Taliban, you know, like just lower ranking, I, I suppose like enlisted members of their 
political organization who uh, document their photographers and things of that nature. So, yeah, they have like all these different things. So basically a small force of like 50,000 people had overturned uh, a military much larger than many Western countries, much larger and better outfitted than countries like Italy, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, like 300,000. Well, uh, so. I don't know if Italy is the best example. because Well, right. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, Italy has been on the verge of separating and having their own civil war into the north true, and south true, for yeah. like since they since World War II. <laughs> true, so, true. Which would yeah. be funny to see a, an Italian civil war. Uh, you know, war is not funny, but sometimes yeah. it is. Yeah, right. like, but, you know, still like, you know, like country, $2 trillion economy, like, you know, like, you know, wealthy developed modern country uh, that, I mean, in theory, Afghanistan could have beaten just based on like numbers and weaponry, uh, but they folded over uh, pretty easily. Yeah. Like, the Taliban, you know, so it's, it's one of the situations where like, if you have a very small, but dedicated minority, they can amass, you know, tremendous change. Um, I think during the civil rights era, about like the 20 year period in the 50s, 60s, I think there were like maybe 40,000 participants. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I can get better numbers and kind of come back to you on another conversation. But mm -hmm. I do believe it was around like 40,000 people like actively participated in the first decade or so. And then towards the end, as like MLK became like a huge national figure, more people started to follow him. But uh, it was really like a, a very, very, very tiny relatively tiny community of like college kids yeah like really standing up and like fighting for these issues um so i mean you know yeah like in burkina faso it's like a group of ragtag dudes and like you know toyota tacomas with like a machine gun in the back but i mean i i know that i would be in a crowd of like a thousand people running away from like two people with guns and then just those two people with guns can completely subdue like all a thousand of us because who wants to get mm -hmm. shot you know yeah like who's next it's like who's gonna step you ain't gonna step i ain't gonna step yeah, yeah. you know so, but uh you know i was just thinking about like some the math behind something where you mentioned that you know it started the civil rights movement started out around like let's say forty thousand people and then grew when Martin Luther King became more, you know, prolific and had all of his rallies and was making all these strides um, for, you know, the movement. But I, I don't think that as far as traditional African-American, like civil rights activism, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that the movement, as far as like full-time people actively working on it, is anywhere near that size anymore and you could argue it's because a lot of the objectives of the civil rights movement were were achieved not all of them but a lot were and so i would be interested to see if you graphed it what that curve would look like that like community like community involvement curve where it's like a really small amount of people at first and then the movement gets a lot of support and gets a lot of momentum going and you, you know it expands and then once you get to where you were trying to go kind of it just drops off right and, I, and then i think 
that drop off period, it I, I feel like that's a significant that moment where people start to go, okay, the war's over, we've won. Hmm. I feel like that's a pretty significant point. Um like for a movement because that could be where you know that could be a point where you've obtained you've let's say you've achieved like 90 percent of your your stated goals and you've made all this change that's historic and you know sooner than people ever expected and like this is awesome this is great and then you start to go well we we still have another 10 percent that we want to get done and then I wonder if you start to get a lot of pushback from not just your opposition, but also members of your own movement and community going like, well, do you think maybe we've asked for too much? Like, do you mm-hmm. think maybe we've, we're kind of like, you know, pushing our luck at this point? It's like, can we really get that too? Can we really get this as well? Um, like we've already gotten so much like, and I, I bet you at that moment, that point, is when a lot of the community members start to start to drop out of the movement because they go, well, yeah, I, Hey, I've got all these new rights. Now I'm, I'm going to go use them. I'm not going to sit here and continue to protest daily for the extra 10%. It's like diminishing returns. Right. Right. Um, but I, I do wonder if right, if that's like an inflection point where a, a pretty substantial amount more of change could happen if you just push a little bit harder right then or are you gonna have to spend another like if if maybe you got all of your goals accomplished in the movement in the first like five years or 10 years and then you stop there because you're like i don't want to push it any further if it takes you another 50 years to get that last 10 percent, because now you have to go through the very long like laborious process of like you know getting Supreme Court precedent and all and you know do you know what I mean like I wonder if once you have to start working within the system because the movement is kind of written off almost like a do we do we need a civil rights movement anymore like you know when you and when you and me were growing up it was like I never really heard about the civil rights movement anymore it was like um, if if anything the biggest movement that was going on when we were growing up was the LGBTQ like movements. Mm. Um, and it kind of felt like society almost jumped onto like a new movement. Like that's the, that's the new group of people that we need to uplift and, and, uh, and like, you know, focus on and support, but it's like, well, what about the other 10% that the black community didn't get during the civil rights movement? Do they have yeah. to now wait 50 years to go through the, you know, the more, the slower, like, legal judicial reform process. Right. Um, meanwhile, they get to watch, like, all these other movements pop up and get a lot of support and kind of feel like they kind of got left behind. Like, I just, I really think there's an inflection point where um, if you stop that momentum, it, I, I know I've gone on for a rant now, but, but I, 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 it just stood out to me when you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, there are times where I, I consider myself a leftist and there are times where I consider myself uh, neoliberal uh, just in the sense that, oh, what was it, like maybe six years ago now? God, like six years ago, uh, 
uh, when Bernie Sanders was running for president. Um, I was really a part, uh, I was really in favor of that movement because I was glad that he was talking about things, issues in society that have been persistent, that have kind of been glossed over, you know, um, like the student debt crisis. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I was of the stance of like, I'm going to take out as few loans as possible and get rid of them as fast as I can. But a lot of other people weren't really taught that way. You know, I was taught that the only way to really get ahead is to go to college and get these loans and then try to get a job with it. Other people were kind of taught the same thing and went even deeper into debt for even more specialized education and still aren't able to find jobs like in their career fields. Sanders, only person to ever come out and say anything about that. And if you kind of look at the Democrats now, they've essentially, in 2015, 2016, he was laughed at. If you look at every Democratic platform today, it's a carbon copy of what he ran on back in 2015. Um, and some people have gone even further to the left because I guess, you know, it's, it's tantalizing to kind of show this like interesting and different idea that people haven't been exposed to before but not really, you know, act on any of those ideas. Uh, and the way I, and the reason I bring up that, I, I feel like I start off as a leftist and I'm kind of moving towards more of like a neoliberal is because uh, a movement alone is not very useful. Like it's, it's good to galvanize people and to get people interested, but ultimately what you need to do is to establish yourself and to, kind of make peace with the establishment and find a way into the establishment, right? Like you need to mm, yeah. be on the inside to actually affect change. Cause it's like, sure. Like you go on the internet and you say, Oh, you know, these workers aren't getting what they need. And then you get all your little likes on Facebook or whatever. And, or perhaps like you even get to the extreme and you can build up a crowd of people to go out and protest and even riot and sure, like you've blown off some steam, you know, you've smashed some windows, you've gotten a lot of interactions on a post or whatever the case may be. Like there's there's mm -hmm. all this momentum in this movement, but ultimately what what really comes of it if you're not actually affecting change systematically? Right? Yeah, like likes don't change the laws. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, yeah. and even like the creation of laws. It's like I remember after the George Floyd riots, the Congress had passed like a new police law and people are like, we won, we did it. We stopped police brutality. And it's like uh, a few days ago, Amir Locke was shot in his home or in a friend's home. And I'm like, in the same city that George Floyd was killed in. And I'm just like, all right, what, what did all that writing accomplish? And I remember I took a lot of heat for it, like during the time where I was just like, I, I was kind of annoyed, you know, and it's one of those times where people look at me, they're like, oh, you're a damn conservative. You're a damn Republican. I'm like, I'm, I'm not. It's just, it's just, yeah, I, I don't, I can't really resonate with like just weird illogical behavior, uh, mm -hmm. especially when people try to like justify it and make it seem as if it is completely logical. And then like, no, it's not, it's a, it's a complete emotional reaction that's like not really planned or coordinated or anything. It's just like people kind of just, you know, acting off a of pure impulse. And I'm like, okay, take that frustration, take that anger and manifest it into a controlled and consistent effort to push back against these systems that you do not appreciate, right? Like you're yeah. tired police uh, who are not from your area policing your area, 
get people from your area into the police force. Right. You know, like or uh, pull together resources and move out of those areas. You know, like it, the civil rights movement, it wasn't just people talking about what angered them. It was people taking real effective change to make things very different. You know, I, you kind of mentioned that, like the civil rights movement had like advanced people of color and we're kind of trying to get that 10 percent back. I think with MLK. Uh, he was very much a socialist, uh, if not a socialist, like a social democrat. And he really wanted just your average low income earning person to stop putting their money into the system that was abusing them, like organizing boycotts and things of that nature. And he really wanted people to get into community banking away from like these major banks that will just take your money and offer you debt in return instead yeah. go to, you know, uh, away from the commercial banks to um, credit unions, you know, things of that nature, like smaller, more controlled, like more regional, more social, like more like involvement from the community. Um, Interesting with that in mind, do you think that he would be for or like against like uh, currency like Bitcoin? Uh, Decentralizing away from the banks, but it's not necessarily like a local community, you know? So I don't know. I, I've I've I'm not like the most astute like on MLK's like philosophies. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I knew about him economically is that he wanted African Americans to put their money into uh, black owned banks and like away from majority white owned banks, and he wanted white allies to put their money into black owned banks uh, because that would essentially basically you'd have people who had their like skin in the game. But this was also before desegregation, right? Like this was yeah. Right. Like this is before he kind of he, he would have no idea what America would look like today, essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. Like during his time, if you are a wealthy black person, you literally had no choice but to live with other wealthy black people. So you had uh, more of a concentration of wealth within black communities during his time versus a post desegregation world where if you're a wealthy black person, oh, well, now no one can stop you from moving into this high income area that previously was all white. Uh, so that took wealth out of the community. So, I mean, MLK was saying, hey, let's keep our money into our communities at a time when most of the money stayed in the black community. So, I mean, now it's uh, drastically different, right? Yeah. Uh, so kind of that. all that being said, cryptocurrencies are, I don't want to say the ship has sailed on them, but the vast majority of crypto wealth is already concentrated in a few small hands. Yeah. Right. Like anyone who's trying to get into cryptocurrency who wasn't into cryptocurrency in 2008 is getting the crumbs of what is already in the possession of a few people. You know, like if, if Bitcoin were worth a hundred thousand dollars, half the billionaires on earth would be crypto billionaires. Wow. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, it's one of those things where I think if MLK were alive today, he would say like, hey, you know, like don't get distracted by like get rich quick opportunities, like focus more of your energy towards uh, community building, you know, like keep your money and then probably invest it into buying and keeping a home in your neighborhood. Like don't let the bank own your home while you pay a mortgage, buy your home, own it, 
And then that's something that you actually own. That's something you have real equity in. I think he was more so a micro economist as opposed to. I, 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 well, mm, I don't know the terminology for it. it. He was very much into like community, the community's economy, right? As opposed to like a few individuals trying to become wealthy on their own like he was like i said he was like a borderline socialist yeah uh he so. might have yeah he might have been like more he might maybe if he lived in a time like now where like you know it wasn't he he in his time grew up during mccarthyism where like he could literally be killed for saying that you were a communist or a, a socialist so maybe now i mean he would probably be more open but yeah that's all hypothetical yeah so. more of a collectivist Right. Gotcha. Hmm. Well, with that in mind, um, what was your conflict of interest? Oh, that's a good title. <laughs> that would be a good podcast name, like conflict, conflict of interest. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Uh, I I wanted I wanted it to. You know, I'm 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 a, a movie nerd, mm-hmm. uh, so I kind of want to tie it into like what's happening now, with, like China, in terms of a lot of their censorship issues. Um, mm-hmm. Also, kind of related back to the United States and our censor- censorship issues, to where we do have like this kind of like bigoted and hypocritical stance to where like if China does something bad, then it's like ah, oh, China's evil. But when the United States does something equally as bad we try to pretend like we're not doing that yeah uh in terms of film uh very recently the 1999 movie fight club was aired in china but the ending in the chinese release of the film is a lot different from the american release oh yeah how so uh so the way the china and i sent you a uh an article link wall street journal link uh on facebook messenger um, but like in the Chinese version, they take out the ending and spoiler alert, if you've never seen fight club, but they, they took out the ending where the terrorist group, uh, blows up all the buildings in the city and they replace it with, uh, the main character was actually stopped by the police just in time. Hmm. And a lot of Americans were like, well, this is terrible. Like, you know, you can't just censor these movies. What's wrong with you guys? But the writer of fight club, the writer of the novel actually came out in support of that change and said it's actually more accurate to the original book ending. Uh, and his book was actually changed by editors and then the film was changed by the film studio uh, to be just more entertaining and more, you know, bombastic, no pun intended, actually. Yeah, more more provocative. More so. provocative, right? Just to, just to be more entertaining, just to get more people interested in seeing the movie. Um, so he, and he was like, hey, well, in reality, like China's edit was actually more accurate to what I had written, what I initially intended the story to be. Uh, And I was actually not necessarily censored, but edited for the sake of capitalism. Right. So it's kind of like, kind of like that, that interesting thing where like here in the West, we're like, Hey, you know, anything that occurs in this country, China is essentially bad because the government's doing it. Whereas like in the States, we essentially do the exact same thing, but we allow companies to do it. Being, and then we say, oh, well, if it's for money, then it's fine. Yeah. Um, and more so like 
from a government perspective, Texas has recently banned or shadow banned a term that I've read online, but have shadow banned many, many, many books from their public libraries and their prisons and their schools, uh, many of which are written by the author of Fight Club. I think his name is Palinik. Hmm. Uh, and he came out recently and he challenged Ted Cruz and said, hey, you know, like, if we're so against censorship, if we're so against, if we're all about freedom of speech in America, like, let's get these books unbanned in Texas. Yeah, man, I, I think anytime you start banning books, like, even, even like the worst books in the world, like, you know, the most crazy outlandish, even hateful books, potentially, like, I think when you go down a slippery slope, because it, it, it gets hard to like, who are you to say what's what's bannable, right? And also, right. it's like, come on, dude, you can't be the party of anti-censorship right now and then also censor anything. Like, you know, one, you're going to get caught. And, and two, when you get caught, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin your credibility. It's going to say like, oh, as a Republican, like, or the Republicans just want their speech not censored but they're fine with other people's you know right um it's it's actually almost the same argument the republicans made against the democrats or the democrats you know used to be quote unquote the party of like free speech and like at the party of of you know like new and innovative ideas and letting everyone have a voice and all this kind of stuff and then right. now it kind of does look like the democrats have gone in a direction of you know you know quote unquote cancel culture and what you can and cannot say and stuff like that and, right which i think the republicans i think anybody has the right to point out and say like hey that's not very cool but if you're going to point that out and then secretly ban books in your own state like fuck off dude <laughs> right right like, you know yeah yeah the hypocrisy is wild it you know like nancy pelosi like recently uh made a statement to the uh american olympians over in china right now for the winter olympics uh -huh. uh, i think they were trying to uh protest like, some of the police brutality that's occurring over in china that you know you don't really hear as much about because there's uh, heavy censorship with the journalism over there but apparently like these athletes are like witnessing some like firsthand things that just don't make them they're just not very comfortable with yeah, uh, Nancy Pelosi is just like, hey, you know, like, don't protest, like, don't do anything over there. Like, we don't know what the government's going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Fox News this segment or have, have done several segments where they're basically like, oh, hey, okay, Nancy Pelosi doesn't really care about Americans. Yeah. You know, like, she really should say, like, if China does anything to you guys, like, they're going to have to deal with us type of thing. But, you know, it's kind of weird because, I mean, like, Fox News is also the the channel that will look at police killings in America and try to justify them. Uh, but then turn around yeah. and say that the police killings in China are, you know, extremely oppressive. Um, and I would even say that, yes, like I think what's going on in China, I, what, what happens anywhere on earth in terms of the government, just like killing civilians for no real reason. Like it is completely terrible. Uh, imprisoning people is completely terrible. One thing that we have here in America is that we can at least talk about it. You know, we can at least like say, hey, this is wrong. 
and it's completely legal to do that. Whereas, um, to my knowledge, is not something that would fly over in the People's Republic of China. Yeah, it's funny you say that, that, that that's happening again, at least where, or more so where, you know, we're, we're not wanting to quote unquote anger China right now, you know, while, while the Olympics are going on and stuff or in general, um, because not that long ago, back in 2008, when the Summer Olympics were held there, I actually went to China, but on a, I was in school at the time and I went I went with my school to that, uh, to visit uh, Hong Kong and, sorry, not Hong Kong, Beijing and uh, Shanghai. And, you know, I remember we were on the tour bus in Beijing and we came, we were the front bus. So we were the first bus and like, I think four, like four buses total. And we came around the street corner and there were these two Chinese, I don't know if they were police or military police, their uniform looked more military. It was kind of like an off, off beige kind of brownish color. Um, but they were, you know, kicking and hitting with their rifles. Uh, this guy on the, like, you know, he was laying on the ground. Like, I don't, I don't think he started laying on the ground. I think they had beaten him until he was laying on the ground. They were still continuing to beat him. And but when the, our bus came around, one of the officers uh, saw the bus, saw that it was a, like an American tour bus, and tapped the other one on the shoulder. They both kind of did a double take at the bus, grabbed the guy on the ground, stood him up, like like shouldered or like you know, holstered their their weapons or at least put them down or, and then like stood the guy up. And then, like, all three of them, the, the two officers and the guy who was previously getting the crap beaten out of by those two officers, were all waving at our bus. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was China's presentation, like, what, that's not, like, what, 14 years ago? Yeah. And at that time, they were, like, you know, it was right before the Olympics was about to be held. They didn't want anybody to question them on anything. They were trying to, like, play nice. And right. now, another Olympics goes by in China, and now the rest of the world is going, well, we don't want to, we don't want to piss them off. Don't, don't say anything when you're there. When before, me, as a random American tourist, seeing them beat the crap out of a guy who I don't doubt Maybe that maybe, you know, actually, I don't know. I don't know if he did anything wrong, but regardless, they didn't want to see, they didn't want us to see that treatment. Right. But now it's not only is it okay, we can't even like call it out, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm kind of curious as to like, uh, what was it like in 2008 with uh, US athletes over there? Because, you know, I, you know, being a little kid, I didn't really care. Um, or, or at least I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Like, I wasn't knowledgeable about what was occurring. Uh, yeah. I do know that one of my favorite artists back in college, a guy named Ai Weiwei, he was uh, kind of like a political activist artist in China. Like, 
uh, he would he would do very outlandish things, like take a Ming boss and just like crush it, you know. Oh, and then yeah. and that would be like his art piece. It was just pictures of him crushing a, a Ming boss, kind of like just everything he did was just like in protest of like what was occurring in China. And he talked about what was happening during that time, like 08, around the time of the Beijing Olympics, and talking about uh, the gentrification that was occurring in Beijing where they needed land to build the Olympic facilities. And they wanted to keep everything kind of central to Beijing, kind of like, a, uh, this is kind of like a nerdy reference, but like Bossing Say in uh, <laughs> Avatar The Last Airbender, how like it's the very, very centralized government of the Earth Kingdom. Like yeah. they wanted to keep everything in Beijing because it was easy to monitor everything as opposed to you know, like a World Cup or whatever that takes place in like eight different cities. And they're like, no, we want to keep everything monitored right here in Beijing. So in order to do that, in order to build those new Olympic facilities, they had to pretty much push like tons and tons and tons of poor people out of the city to demolish those uh, housing areas and to erect uh, sporting facilities. And, you know, Ai Weiwei, he was uh, obviously very much against that. And you know, it's kind of like how you might see like gentrification in the United States to where people are going to push back against and they're like, hey, you know, like these may be like very run down low income areas, but they're our homes. Um, and, you know, and it becomes like a huge fight and it takes like years and years and years for any kind of thing to happen, which ultimately, you know, people just get paid off like mm -hmm. someone's going to like sell their little house for like 500 grand when they thought it was worthless. And then that 500 grand area turns into like a $18 million uh, mall or something of that nature. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but not the same in China, you know, not in, you know, in Beijing, it's like that government housing that you had to live in because you couldn't afford to live anywhere else. It's gone. You've been relocated to like a new city and you have a new job, uh, whether you like it or not, whether like your skills match that job or not it's like this is just where you are now yeah that's yeah. that's really tough um, there's a youtuber that i follow um that uh i believe he's originally from china i know he lived in hong kong for a very long time and um he's a he's a photographer and you know, he's not like an activist of, of any sort. He's really just like a photography geek, you know. And I I don't think he was exactly like targeted or oppressed himself, you know. Um, like, it's not like he was making any kind of like protest against the Chinese government or anything like that. But I think just the nature of him being a freelance free thinking you know photography gear reviewing person in hong kong that wasn't aligned with the government that wasn't explicitly promoting you know chinese products that you know i think he, i know that he uh, immigrated to uh, to the uk to london um this past uh, either summer or fall uh, because I, I just Hong Kong wasn't really 
you know, sustainable for for the long term. I think if he wasn't being oppressed at that moment, he probably saw the right in the wall where it's like, well, this is not going to last for forever. And so and that's kind of crazy. You know, it's like sometimes when we see countries like like what's happening in China or, you know, other places, you know, the, on the even more extreme like North Korea, you go, well, I get, I get that the activists are having like a hard time. The activists are obviously bring, drawing attention to themselves. It's like, well, maybe, maybe the activists could just like work on quiet reform and they could shut the fuck up for a bit and then the government won't brutalize them. You know, there's some people that will make that argument, but it's like this YouTuber, uh, his name's uh, Locke. Oh, okay. And, uh, like, you know, Locke comes off across as one of the most mild mannered, quiet, nicest guys ever. He's not an activist. He's not trying to piss off anyone or make a statement about anything except for how many megapixels that camera has, you know? And the fact that someone like him has to leave that country seems like, okay, maybe, maybe it's not always, you know, you know, don't just blame the activists and say that they're too loud. You know, they're, they're bringing the, the attention to themselves it's like sometimes that that kind of regime can just start to eat itself or you know tell the people that are engaging in honestly a pretty free market exercise of like youtube reviews you know are now being you know either again i'm not saying i don't know i don't want to say that he was full-on like forced out of the country but I, i think more just so the incentives of living in a in a free country just start outweigh the you know loyalty and not even loyalty but just probably the familiarity of uh staying in china right yeah and that's that's sad that's hard yeah yeah like that that is like that that is like super extreme um as you said like this like pretty benign guy like all he's doing is saying oh i prefer uh a Nikon or a Canon or whatever the case may be. But if he's yeah. not promoting like a Chinese camera company, then, you know, he's considered like an enemy or like it's just yeah. unpatriotic or whatever the case may be. And it may not have even been the government. I mean, it could have just been the people around him who are um, making yeah. him feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Or, you know, you might get an email from the government being like, you know, we see you've, you've made a lot of products on Canon. Why don't you make a product on Weiwa or something, you know? Yeah, is, uh, is Weiwa gonna sponsor me? Yeah. <laughs> no, he's like, what? Why must you be sponsored, you capitalist pig? He's like, yeah, bro. Like, where's your loyalty to, to China? It's like, yeah. ooh, that's. Yeah. Any time I ever got an email that's like, where's your loyalty to your, your country from our government? I'd yeah. be like, oop, okay. Also, um, uh, YouTube is not uh, legal in China. So I mean, Interesting. yeah. So I mean, if if they found out that he was actually on YouTube, then. And I mean that that even that alone might have been the reason why he had to go because he's like, hey, yeah. I really like YouTube as a platform. Um, I've earned a living off of this platform. Uh, VPNs are illegal in China. Yeah, uh, which would make getting around the YouTube issue harder. Right, and I mean well, that's two being, crimes, right? That's two crimes you're already going to be charged with: it's the VPN and YouTube. Yeah, so I mean, maybe I know like uh, Hong Kong had pretty much stayed it was it was under like the uk's control and then like in the 90s it went back to china but they were under the uh like one state two systems policy 
but then in the past i believe four or five years now like they've been cracking down pretty heavily on hong kong so maybe up until recently like hong kong was allowed to have youtube they were allowed to have twitter yeah i think hong kong in general was the more globalist city in china you know the, the more western the more globalized and I think that that's why, I, I think that's both what caused, you know, Hong Kong got a lot of attention when you start having the police um, crackdowns in China. But I think a lot of that attention uh, also came because trying to crack down so hard on it. And I think trying to crack down so hard on it is because they needed to, in a sense, kind of break the morale or the will of the people that were living there that were used to a more western globalized you know uh atmosphere and china's like uh-uh uh-uh not anymore nah son <laughs> you you part of china now and, and you're gonna like it <laughs> or you're you're gonna have problems and then hong kong was like uh we choose problems and china was like you don't want these problems <laughs> but I don't I don't really know why like China feels so uh threatened by I guess like democratic values, you know. I I, I understand like there is like uh, a deep connection to like tradition, but like even like when Mao had taken over the country, like he had you know, he he was he was fighting against like the nationalists, he was fighting against like that like national sense of tradition and trying to adhere to like the old ways and like the, you know, viewed like the old imperial system of China as like being highly oppressive. And it seems like now that China has gone uh, nationalist. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to like throw around the word Nazi, but like they, they're basically just like super nationalists. They're uh, cracking down on anything that isn't Chinese essentially. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's like, like a, it's, it's like how the the Nazis pretty much said, "Hey, you have to be of like pure Aryan blood to play Mozart." You know, like you. Yeah, it's almost like a supremacy, uh, like obsession, but from a perspective where there's, I, I mean, maybe they think they're the best, but I don't think the rest of the world still yet sees China as the top player, you know, but China's acting as if you have to do everything in the Chinese way, you know? Right. Kind of like, oh, because you're, cause you're the best and you think you're the best. Right. Like, and it's like, well, you haven't gotten there yet. Like, calm down. Like, uh, yeah. like you know, to slow your roll a little bit, bro. <laughs> it's like, not everything has to be Chinese yet. Like, and not saying that, and I know like we kind of, we kind of exported Americanism across the planet, you know, right. um, but we've also, we were on top when we did that, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't, I don't think China wants to export like, uh, like being Chinese, you know, I think it's kind of like British empire. Right. Yeah. You know, where they're just like, Hey, like, you know, Nigerians, like you guys aren't British. We don't want you to be British. We just want like whatever resources we can get from you. Like, uh, China going into Africa, uh, it's kind of that. I mean, it's essentially like, hey, like, you know, you're not Chinese. We don't expect you to be Chinese. We just need this land. We need these resources so that we can essentially become like a consumer economy. Uh, people are just tired of being producers in China, which is understandable, you know. 
It's like yeah. there's all this cool stuff out there. You you just want to spend your money. You just want to buy stuff. And now that China's becoming a richer and richer country, like people actually can't do that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you know they're almost like recolonizing. Like you know, we especially you have you know in our country you have all these this kind of uh, shaming of our colonial imperialism past and stuff, which definitely elements of the of like you know the countries that founded the new world even if their new world i don't even know if the new world is the right word to term but word to use but you know we're, we're we've been kind of shaming a lot of our history and how we came to be you know even just the united states let alone any of the other even you know the founding of canada or mexico or whatever um by going out and colonizing right but then it's like china's doing exactly that again uh into and i would argue that potentially the africa that call that that china is colonizing today is in a more vulnerable uh and worse economic place worse community you know place than africa was when the, you know, the Europeans started trying to colonize it. And it's like, so China's walking into like a, an entire continent and they're doing this in South America and Central America too, but you know, and across Asia, they're, they're walking into these parts of the, of the world that are very resource rich, but the countries are falling apart. And I don't think that those countries were necessarily falling apart when the Europeans walked in and took over everything. And so it's it's almost like China's coming in and like taking advantage even more than the Europeans did. They're like, oh look, they'll take any kind of land deal we can give them now because their people are starving. And their people are starving in part because of, you know, the sins of colonialism. But China's coming in and will be like, Well, our colonialism will, you know, capitalize on the you guys created and i don't know it just seems a little seems scummier <laughs> you know like yeah i don't i don't know enough about um like chinese business deals like taking place like in the continent yeah um, i i just I think, think objectively yeah. africa has to be doing worse off now than it was before colonialism like i i don't think a lot of africa is saying that colonialism like did them a favor right right you know? right and yeah. so china's coming in and being like any deal that china's offering uh is probably looked at pretty uh you know like if you're man if you're starving and china offers your your town a deal you're probably like yeah we'll take it <laughs> right yeah it's like you know you kind of uh i guess like kicking some while they're down essentially right like yeah like prior to colonialism, uh, you could probably say like the countries weren't as like technologically developed as the European countries that had come through. Uh, also, they were like very much depleted from like slavery, for example. Uh -huh. You know, lost a lot of their population to like have the people to train to be, you know, skilled workers and uh, things of that nature uh, mm -hmm. to build larger militaries to kind of push back against 
colonization. And then here comes China, with, which is basically like, okay, now that we kind of see you like in this weakened state, you know, we can get like a, a cheaper deal on these yeah. goods or, you know, or they might even play to the, uh, why would you want to do business with these Western countries that kind of put you in this situation where you can do business with us kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. It you know. kind of reminds me, it, it's not exactly the same, but, you know, a lot of the cigarette companies um, saw tremendous growth uh, in the in the first and second world wars um, and so much so that you know uh, care packages like military issued care packages that families could like order for their for the soldiers that went overseas or even just like i think mres or like came with cigarettes <laughs> you right. know and yeah. They weren't military issued cigarettes. I mean, they were issued by the military, but they weren't manufactured by the military. They were right, manufactured right, right. by, you know, Marlboro, Camel, whoever, Newport, whatever the brand brands were at the time back then. But it's like you had the these soldiers who were in like a incredibly rough. They're in the first and second world wars. They're not having a great time. And then you're like, oh, by the way, here's a cigarette. And right. let's get you addicted <laughs> while you're in one of the worst parts of your life. And let's pretend like we're doing you a favor. Right. You know? And it's kind of like China's doing something similar now where they're like, oh, hey, Africa, looks like you're not having a good time. Do you want some do you want some trade deals? And Africa's like, yeah, sure. And then meanwhile, China's just taking them for everything they have. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like time will tell um, mm-hmm. in terms of just like how the world develops and like where things go, like what direction we're kind of going in. I think the biggest thing, I, I was watching this documentary, uh, and this is like super outdated, but it was in Angola. Uh, and there were Chinese development companies out there. And pretty much they had like this trade deal where uh, there was some kind of raw material from Angola that was being shipped over to China. And in exchange, like there were these Chinese engineers and architects who were building housing developments to you know, be like more modern, right? Like yeah, most Angolans were kind of living in just like 1950s style houses, like very small. Uh, They're probably falling apart too. Right, right. Like poor condition, like in need of upkeep. Uh, so they're you know developing like all these large apartment buildings that look more 21st century. But the problem in the engineer, the Chinese engineer was kind of talking about this. He was like, yeah, the, you know, they kind of want the, and he was saying they like the Angolan population, they're just like, yeah, they, they kind of want like everything overnight. And mm-hmm. I mean, like a lot of this development is going to take years upon years upon years upon years. Yeah. Uh, and there's kind of like a pressure from the locals of like, Hey, how come we don't have jobs as good as yours? And he's like, well, you, you kind of have to go to university for a very long time to become an engineer. And uh, even yeah. then it's like thousands upon thousands of engineers before even me to, for me to have the skills that I have, because I've, I've pretty much been standing on the shoulders of giants pretty much. Yeah. To get for sure. um, and I guess like the, you know, China being like a very ancient society, like there was a lot of that development from very, very, very long ago versus like a lot of these African countries where the concept of like a state 
didn't really emerge until let alone a stable one yeah right yeah it's like like you know we're trying to like china had a state four thousand years ago right i'm pretty sure four thousand years ago it, it looked way worse than anything on earth today uh yeah. well like I, it, yeah i i think like what you're, you're part of what you're getting at too is this or maybe i'm assuming but is that they want it right now like you're saying the angolans want that you know that that growth and that stability and that you know the housing conditions and stuff that china is offering right now yeah and understand why it would take a while but at the same time it does seem like china is getting the resource right, benefits exactly. right yeah, now yeah. <laughs> they're like yeah. why yeah and that's like said, said, it looks like why right. do they get everything they want right now we have to wait exactly yeah. yeah and that's that's pretty much what uh like the young man is like this young uh probably like early 20s maybe teenager even uh kid was kind of arguing he was just like you know it's like we're working these mines like we're getting you the minerals that you guys need um and it's taking forever for us to get like these apartment complexes pretty much yeah you know and kind of so what you were saying is just like whatever's happening currently in china uh in terms of they take the mineral resources and then they take them over to the factories there. Uh, then they sell everything back in the States and they take a chunk of the taxes. And then that can go towards developing the country, kind of like wash, rinse, repeat. And that's why China has developed uh, as much as it has, like so fast. Like seeing photographs of like what China looked like in the 1960s compared to now is like insane to me. Like I, I don't even believe it sometimes. I, sometimes I think these are like fake photos. <laughs> I'm not, not even going to yeah. lie to you. Um, but it's real, you know, it's, it's legit. Uh, the extreme development that occurred in just like a few decades. Well, uh, my my aviation nerd is going to come out for a second. And then I think we're probably going to be running out of time. Okay. Um, but the what's funny is when you talk about the development from like the 60s till, till now is if you ever go on Google Earth, and you start looking. Um, I I went down a YouTube rabbit hole one day where I found this like aviation channel, and all they do is they look at Google Earth um, locations of like like military airfields <laughs> and like airports. But um, like you know China and North Korea and, and even parts of Russia, but specifically China. You know there a lot of their military airports. With Google Earth, you can see what jets and stuff they have out there yeah. on the, on the uh, runways or in like, you know, makeshift hangars and stuff like that, or even just like, you know, outdoor storage. And you'll see World War II era, you know, propeller driven aircraft parked next to like brand new, like top of the line, you know, twin engine, you know, you know. Uh, current generation fighter jets, yeah, and it's kind of like, whoa, okay, like what's going on here? And it's kind of like what you're talking about is that for a very long time they were using pretty antiquated gear, um, and in the matter of like a decade or two, everything's you know top notch, right, um, right. But they haven't gotten rid of their stuff 
because it's kind of like if you know you know i have my truck right now but if i'm trying to think of a better example i have like you know that little that little sporty volvo yeah and if i went out and bought a brand new you know porsche 911 tomorrow like i wouldn't necessarily get rid of the volvo tomorrow like it actually still kind of works pretty great it's still cool but you know when it's parked next to the brand new hundred something thousand dollar porsche like anyone who sees that on google earth is going to be kind of like okay like what's what's going on here and i thought thought you were going to make like a total war like a civ reference where it's like you have like a super advanced civilization but you still (laughs) forgot about like some uh, super outdated units that you never upgraded oh dude i do that all the time it's but just, uh... i dude I, whenever i would play uh what was it total war i love doing the the peasant army like because yeah. if you just that game was so broken when it came to using multiple uh like just like hard tactics right because, you know i would i would do that and i would come up against troops that had muskets and you know cannons and i just had like sixteen thousand peasants with fitch pitchforks right <laughs> and it's like musket guys couldn't reload fast enough to to shoot all the peasants and so yeah it worked out pretty well but and actually doctrine wise that was what a lot of china and russia did for a while was numbers over quality but they they're fastly getting to a quality standpoint and and partially because they've had the economy to support that and like you said you can see 1960s photos to today it's like a different planet almost yeah yeah and their tech reflects that so now if you have the economy to afford it and you have the intelligence agencies that can go (laughs) hack and steal everything (laughs) you know um, all you have to do at that point is buy shit um so they were able to focus on they were almost able to do kind of what japan did in a way where japan didn't have to focus on the military because the u.s was going to protect them and you know china had had didn't have to focus on military development because all they had to do was go steal it from anyone else Mm -hmm. Um, and instead they could all put all their you know quote unquote like video game terms again they could put their they could build their tech tree all towards the economic tech tree and then they could and their espionage <laughs> and they could just go steal all the tech they needed and then spend all the money they made from their economy to go build it themselves. Yeah. Um, and in an economy where wages are not probably comparable to Western economies and, you know, they can steal it, they can steal the tech and then they can build the jets and the tanks for cheaper than the, than the, technology that they stole it from you know so it's not a not a bad strategy you know not the most quote-unquote honorable but um but effective so yeah Mm -hmm. so um like i said i think i am actually going to be running out of time today um but I, I really appreciate you coming on today and hopefully we can kind of use this as a, a, a stepping stone and continue to, you know, kind of tweak this here and there and figure out what we liked, what we didn't like and, uh, and start episode two, uh, maybe next week.
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Where do you have any uh, closing remarks? Uh, I'll be going on tour. You can uh, check me out at not. Nah, no, I have no closing remarks. Oh wait, no, no, you you do have closing remarks. Let me find them real quick. Okay. Um, we don't have a sponsor today, but it would be very difficult to tell that we didn't have a sponsor. Um, <laughs> just, uh, just because I, we have a message uh, from I love PDF.com. Yes. Yes. I love please. PDF.com has become my new favorite website. I keep getting PDFs from people who want them changed, but I don't have any software on my, at my workstation to change the PDFs. So I end up having to work on stuff at home or alternatively go to another location. But thanks to ilovepdfs.com, I can actually do stuff from home or from wherever I'm at. Um, do we have a sponsorship link, Askia? No, we don't. But <laughs> could you save 15% and get free shipping if you sign up today? No, you can't. Um, and and what's, the, what's the best part about ilovepdfs.com, Askia? It's free. It's free? Wow. 100%. You don't, have to, you don't even need to sign up. You don't even need to log in. You can just go straight to the website, ilovepdfs.com, and do whatever you want. Wow. I, I can't even tell if that's an ad or not. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do love I Love PDF. It has changed my life. That's. Uh, do you, would you recommend ilovepdfs.com over betterhelp.com? Uh, I have not tried betterhelp.com. I probably should, but... but but do you think I love PDFs.com has improved your life measurably? Yeah, I would say so. I, I would say like the the issues I would go to betterhelp.com for I love PDF.com has solved. Oh, well, well damn. Yeah. Maybe, maybe betterhelp.com <laughs> needs to sponsor us so that we can, you know, help them get past their competition, which is <laughs> I love PDFs.com. 100%. I love PDFs.com. That is I. L O V E P D F S dot com. Yes, don't forget the S. The S is important. It's not I love PDF, not singular. <laughs> That's a different website. Very different. We don't know. We haven't tried because why would why, why would we try anything else besides exactly. I love PDFs dot com? I love PDFs dot com. Mm -hmm. I don't know what their phone number is, but I don't think you should try it because it's. It's just about the dot com. I think they mostly communicate via PDF. <laughs> you you get like a US like a USB drive just shows up at your like a like apartment randomly, like on your table, and all it has is like a PDF. Like they don't even transmit things in, in emails. It's just like there's just like a drive. You just randomly like you open up your phone and there's just a PDF there. It wasn't airdrop. You don't you don't even know. The technology that ilovepdfs.com has, they can they can solve all your PDF needs, even if you don't know you have them yet. Uh, basically, just get get a job where like a bunch of the people you work with don't really know what you do, but they know that you do stuff, and then they'll just like hand you a bunch of random tasks. And you're like, I don't know how to do this. That's but somehow... been every job I've had. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you definitely need I love PDFs.com because eventually you're going to get a bunch of PDFs and you're going to be told to change them. And you're just like, you can change a PDF? Wait, I didn't know you could, yeah, I didn't know you could do that at all. Not until I, I, I love PDFs.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or Adobe Pro. 
<laughs> which is uh, shut, up. Than shut up. Shut up. We're not getting sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. I think we'll I think we'll close it here. But um, thanks for coming on. I love you, and uh, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I appreciate Bye. it. Bye.